absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Glad to have you along with us on Buffalo What's Next. Coming up in the second half of uh, today's program, uh, Mark Blue, uh, the Reverend Mark Blue of the NAACP, will be here with uh, Dave Debo. But in our first half, we're talking with Imam uh, Fadri Ansari of uh, the uh, Masjid Numan on Fillmore Avenue. And of course, longtime basketball coach here in Western New York as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jay, for having us. Um, most certainly, please. And uh, I'll try not to let this uh, conversation devolve into all about basketball because I'm curious about uh, uh, tapping into your knowledge and experience. But um, let's talk about the community uh, to start things off. You've been at uh, Master Numan now for over 30 years. Um, so you have a great understanding of that neighborhood for sure. Tell me what life is like right now along and for the people that, that attend. Well, um, we know Buffalo overall, we've had a very um, uh, trying year um, uh, for 2000 or 2022. And um, I am happy that uh, despite the challenges we've gone through, um, that we have kind of bonded together. I feel the community has come uh, closer together in support, which in some cases, especially when you have... uh, uh, tragic um, shooting and killing that's um, race-related. Um, it can have a lot of offspring to a lot of violence and riots and ongoing hatred. Um, um, so thankfully, uh, Western New York, that didn't take place. And I think this is kind of true to the city o- over the years. I, I remember in, um, after the uh, 2011 the bombing um, at the World Trade, and we had a rally out in um, in front of the city hall at the Lafayette, at, at the circle, right. and we were um, able to share some words. And unlike a lot of other places around the country, uh, we didn't have a lot of the uh, aftermath um, that understandably took place uh, the hatred and the anger, you know, towards uh, the Muslim community. Um, so that didn't happen as much, you know, here. And so I'm, I'm happy. In this particular incident with with the tops um, uh, shooting, that is in overall, I think is bringing people uh, together. I mean, it certainly brought highlight to some elephant in the room issues that still need yes. to be resolved uh, here in, in in Western New York as well in this country. But um, I think overall, uh, I felt a sense of people, humanity, overcoming that here. That's that's good to hear, and we have heard that as well. And I'm curious. Have people turned to their faith during this time? I mean, has that been, have you seen that from uh, the, the people, the, the members of your community? 
Yes, and I think that's a, a, a true testimony of, a, of, of the believer. You know, we have you know, verses in our book in the Quran, you know, just, uh, lose not heart nor fall into despair, for you certainly will uh, achieve um, success. You achieve um, victory, you know, if, you, if you're true in, in, in faith. And um, so I think that's important for the, the believer to understand that nothing is outside of um, uh, God's awareness, um, that we're all going to be tried and, and, and tested. This is a part of our being the highest form of God's creation, which is the human family. And so it's, it's a challenge. Um, when you look at all faith, tells us about the forces of good and, and evil. And uh, it's a challenge to to really believe and to promote that good goodness is on the rise and, and uh, there's more good people than there are bad. It's just sometimes the bad people have control of the microphone. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to, uh, to also talk about um, Masjid Numan uh, in the sense of how that community has changed, right? Uh, you know, they, we hear stories and stories about influx of immigrants coming to uh, Buffalo, and most certainly you've seen that uh, for, you, for your... Uh, yeah, our, our community uh, goes back for many, many decades. It was historically rooted in the, uh, the former, former nation of Islam, um, which at the time under Honorable Elijah and Clara and Muhammad. And it was a way to try to subtly introduce the principle of Islam, but more overtly directing the, the uh, racism and um, the nationalism aspect that was um, empowering, making you feel like you were somebody important and recognizing that your root in history was something that was, was great. Um, so over the years, like most um, cities around the, the country, um, whether you label gentrification or just a natural process of, of people moving and immigrating into the community. So we've had... Um, influx in the city of uh, Buffalo, many populations, there's been an uh, increase in Muslim growing all over. Um, there's uh, Somalians, and then you have um, uh, people from Burma uh, coming in, and then more, I mean, I don't want to just try to name all, because I wouldn't be able to name all of them. Sure. But um, more recently, um, uh, the Bangladesh community has really um, grown and increased on the um, the east side of, uh, uh, of Buffalo. And they uh, actually now in, in our services on Friday, they probably make up about half the population for Friday service, you know, not so much in the regular attendance or activities that we involved in, but for services. And um, it used to be decades ago, you probably knew every mosque that was in Buffalo at least, but it's, I, I couldn't even begin to try to say because there's so many popping up, you know, a different parts of the city around. If I'm not mistaken, yours, this is according to something I read in the Buffalo News article from a few years ago, so the numbers probably aren't quite right, but I think yours was the second in the city, and now there's over 20. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, and I don't know, I know there was a, a, a you know, there's a, a Parker Street masjid over by the University of Buffalo has been there for, for years, but if we go back to the actual Nation Islam Temple days, we're going back to the 50s, you oh, know, okay. the 54, and then Lackawanna probably um, the, the community there when they came over to work in the factories, you know, you're going back to those decades. And then there was a, uh, a community out in West Valley, you know, that's going back um, 
back, you know, to that area to around the fifties or so. Um, but it's, it's now, you know, most of the, the massive, um, in the city, I think of mostly from the immigrant communities. Hey, you know, what about the Muslim community? And I, I'm asking for generalities of, of sorts here, but there are so many misconceptions. You talked about uh, some of the issues that were seen after the, you know, the 2001, um, World Trade Center attack, mm-hmm. um, that we're seeing. I meant 9-11. Yeah, 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, what about that? I mean, that, I still think there are lots of misperceptions. At least that's how I see it. But what, what do you find? What What are the things that maybe when you're talking to people who aren't really familiar with the faith that are misconceptions? One of the first misconceptions of mine is usually is trying to differentiate culture from the true tenets of the religion. Um, most people will probably think that um, most Muslims are Arabs or they come from Arabs, but Arabs probably make up only a third of the uh, Muslim population in the world. Um, the Asian community is the largest um, of people of, uh, who are Muslims in the world. And then Africa has a very, very large pocket. Then, you know, so you have Asian, you have India, um, so African. So they far outnumber than the Arabs just because the Quran was revealed in the Arabic language and started in Mecca. Most people associated, but when we you make the pilgrimage uh, to Hajj, you you would see uh, different. We made a few years ago, and um, Wait, you know, what, what was that like? If you don't mind sharing, it's it's very hard to describe. But it's 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 not a vacation. That's for sure. People right. think it's it's one of the five pillars of faith. You know, we have belief in one God. You make you offer your prayer, your worship. You know, you you um, give in charity and you fast during the month of Ramadan. And then the fifth pillar is that uh, once in a lifetime, if you can afford to do so, you make the pilgrimage um, uh, to Mecca. And you truly see all of the whole planet in, in its representation. You see people that look like people you know from back home. And then you just see different um, variations of, like I've seen... The, Feature-wise, you would think that they were Asian or Chinese, but they would be darker than me, you know, real dark. So you see, then you see very tall um, Slavic or European people. So, you know, it's, you're seeing a true universal picture of humanity when you make the uh, the pilgrimage. So when I first entered inside of um, where the the Kaaba is or the, the harem, the, the mosque, I guess it's best to describe walking to a huge stadiums, you know, three layers and, and then there's people on the grounds walking and it's it's almost like a way it's almost kinda like a motion picture type experience on the on the ground level and um so you just have to just pause, you know, um but everyone is there for the same uh, purpose and um if not you wouldn't have millions of people who would without having chaos, you know, without be having some type of order. It's interesting because like you said, it was, it's, it's not a vacation, but the gleam in your eye in describing mm-hmm. what you saw and the different types of people that you saw there, uh, really obviously something that really moved you. Yeah. It's, um, it's like being, um, like I said, it's like being reborn, you know, um, 
you, you know, you can say these things, but you have to really be sincere and, and true. Like, like a fasting during the month of Ramadan is said, if you fast for the period of 29 or 30 days, those who are able to health wise to do so, that you're cleansed and like all of your sins of the year is forgiven. Well, it's also saying when you make the pilgrimage, it's almost like you're all of your previous sins or atonement is for your whole life is, is, is renewed, you know, at, at that time. And so, um, uh, I would like to go again. I'm planning to go because um, um, the first time you you just you know your eyes are just big, but but now you're understanding the the different locations and there's certain rituals, but the true meaning of it. And and most people, the other thing I would say to, uh, maybe to the audience, they're not really aware of this. It's not really about Muhammad the uh, the Hajj. It's really about the, the life story of, of Prophet Abraham and his son Ismail being sacrificed, and um, and the mother. Hagar, we know the story, was an outcast, and her looking for refuge for her son and finding a, a place in the water, which we, the water of cold water, Zam Zam, that's part of the ritual we're running from the two mountains where she was looking to help. So um, it's really on um, the Father Abraham, all the, the main religion, uh, the three major religions of faith, Christianity and Judaism and, and Islam, is really um, the universality is uh, as part of this uh, process. So we follow in the example of Prophet Muhammad in, in making the pilgrimage, but it really goes back to the first house of worship that was established by Prophet Abraham. We're, we're talking uh, with Imam Fadri Ansari this morning of Masjid Nuan on Fillmore Avenue. Um, and we're talking about a, a lot of different things, of course, uh, uh, we also know Fadri Ansari is the head basketball coach at Buffalo State, formerly at Turner Carroll as well. And I, I definitely wanted to t- touch on that a little bit, but let's mm-hmm. put that off for just a second. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing your 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 spiritual journey with us a little bit? Um, because you you mm-hmm. came to this later in life when you were a young adult, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I um. Well, my family um. Uh, I mean, I was raised in New York City. I was actually born in in North Carolina. Came to New York as as a baby, uh, but I can remember my grandfather being uh, the treasurer, you know, the Baptist Church. So, my core background was really was raised in um, as as a Baptist. Uh, so, I've learned those values of doing right and forbidding what is wrong, and um, actually the Ten Commandments, if you will. Um, was pretty much what we were, was raised on. Um, and we pretty much went to church pretty regularly um, when we came in my um, neighborhood in South Jamaica, Queens, and then we moved over to another neighborhood, so we weren't in walking distance, you know, for the church. So uh, I remember going to uh, occasion, it was a Methodist church in, in my neighborhood, um, and I was playing basketball as a youth and at a Catholic uh, summer league, and then the local priests wind up recruiting me to go to a, a Catholic <laughs> high school. So, <laughs> so I have a lot of different exposure than just growing up in um, um, New York City. I remember we used to um, sell candy and things. We used to go shopping, and um, and I remember going in Delancey Street. You know, then um, seeing people didn't know at the time, but seeing the uh, people who were probably from the Holocaust because I remember seeing the, the tattoos and I mm. found out later that they were there. So, you know, then you have Chinatown. So you get, you know, New York City, you get exposed to a lot of very different um, uh, uh, cultures. Um, so 
in the seventies, a lot of um, gangs and, and, and drugs. Uh, there was a movie Denzel Washington, American Gangster. It's a little bit of glamorized, a little bit, but that type of um, challenge was, was the time I was growing up. And I had a friend of mine who I played basketball with. He got involved in the Nation of Islam, and then he started. I saw him kind of like turn his whole life around and clean himself up, and that got me interested. And the and the, the language was talking about. Um, getting rid of the drugs in the community and the respect for the black woman, African-American woman, and, and, and those things became interest to me. So that's how I started, and I kind of waited to my freshman year of college when I came to Buffalo, the University of Buffalo, is when I um, decided to join the community. And at that time, um, Honorable Elijah Muhammad had, had just passed, and his son, uh, Wallace D. Muhammad, Imam W.D. Muhammad, came and his approach uh, was more for the universality of, of Islam and he also thankfully um, spoke about the importance of education because um, being in college and being in the temple of the nation of Islam at the time it wasn't going hand to hand you know it's like almost like you're being sell out like you're just being programmed and, uh, but he really encouraged the um, the educational aspect uh, importance and it really kind of opened the mind to really more where my heart was always at anyway um, and just wanting to help people. And it's interesting to, to uh, I found a couple of uh, videos uh, of, of you online here before this, and uh, one you talked about your mother, and I'm going to use the quote here. She said, if you can list all the things you've done today, you haven't done enough. Yeah, that was Saturday morning. <laughs> Saturday morning, you know, you wanted to, uh, you had, we had chores. Um, I don't know if some people even know what that word means, <laughs> know what that term is. But um, I was the youngest of six, so it was eight of us in the house. And um, so we had to, um, you know, you had to clean up before you go out because I'm trying to hurry up and get out to the park as uh, quickly as you can. So she said, well, what have you done? So I was trying to say, I did this, I cleaned that. And then, you know, one day she said, well, if you can list everything that you've done, then you haven't done much. <laughs> so, so but kinda, that, that seems mm -hmm. to... Carry on today. I mean, here you are. You're mm -hmm. you're a head basketball coach full time. Which and anybody who knows a little bit about coaching knows what that means. Um, and then at the same time, you're helping to run um, Masjid Numan. I mean, helping. You're 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 almost a one man, one person show in a lot of ways. There, right? I mean, you're called upon for a variety of different uh, duties on a daily basis. And sometimes it feels that way, um, but you know, no one can have any type of success without having good, you know, support, you know, uh, um, and the cliche behind every good man is a, is a good one, great woman, and that's, I certainly say that, you know, about my wife, and then other members of the community who, like family, we've been together, so I've known them since I've been a, uh, a teenager, you know, when I first came to uh, to Buffalo, um, but it's, it's a very small core, you know, and I think that formula really... Um, you can use that formula for, for almost any congregation. Some might be a little more because the, the volume of the congregation is larger, but when it breaks down to you know, who you can rely on, you know, it's half of the people, then who you can call on is another half, you know, that, and then who you really, really can depend on and trust, you know, so it, it, that number really shrinks, and so it's just a small core group that really keeps an organization um, kind of going and, and moving. Um, but it's, it's, you know, you don't, if you think about it, you, it's just, it just would be just overwhelming because some people 
they know you just from the circle that they know you in. You right. Know, you're a basketball coach, and they just only know you from coaching. You know, and then the one thing we have yet to mention that you have a family, you know, like, you know, <laughs> have a family. <laughs> We're supposed to be first, right? You right. know, and um, so, you know, you, your children kind of get, you know, sacrificed because your time because you have so many other, I have so many other sons through coaching and, you know, and then the connection with their families. And um, so, I mean, that's a blessing, too, because you you have um like I can travel many places around the country now because of connections of former players or from the affiliation from the mosque as well as my wife. So, you know, that's a blessing because you go almost everywhere you can go, you can have somebody that can host you. And what about, and just to add or find out a little bit more, what about the mosque after May 14th? What were you called upon? What did you hear? What did you see and feel around the neighborhood, around your community? Well, we try to be uh, available and, um, again, uh, just uh, re- reassuring, you know, because, again, you, I, I sincerely believe you will achieve the true prominence if you, if you are a believer, you know. Um, and when God tells you not to lose heart and not to, to lose faith, then uh, I, I give the analogies. It's like a stern like your mother or your grandmother or your father telling you, straighten up, you know, don't be defeated. Don't lose, because you will see that promise victory, you know, if you maintain your faith and you strengthen your faith. And so um, we try to you know, support the people as you can. You're not trying to, you know, because it's the, it's the families, really. It's the, the, the direct families that's mostly impacted. And you, you try not to, you know, I, I didn't want, you know, you saw so many people coming in from out of town, but you didn't want it to feel like it's being exploited. Right. Because, you know, after a while, all the lights are gone and then the camera, then we really not looking at the, uh, the the core issue. You know, it's unfortunate for someone that young to be fed all that kind of rhetoric of hate is just really against the uh, nature, you know. And when you see that the the callousness of it is like you've him and others and then you know the the, the vow shooting in um in texas is almost like they left the human race like they left the their core humanity you know like even if you're angry at someone and we know this is goes from again the big elephant in the room or the uh the the history of um in fact i was i saw not too long i think it was uh, npr on a history of race in America, I think is an excellent um, video for everyone to watch. And it's not really explained enough, the indoctrination over centuries and centuries. You know, race wasn't really utilized the language that much um, to what, 1600s or so? And it was more for just kind of uh, like your lineage, you know. But then colors got into play and then the... um, I mean, what was the name Morton or somebody doing the size of your skull to try to improve that, you know, African African uh, descent was uh, inferior. So you get centuries and centuries of that kind of indoctrination. And then the outcome of you have a superiority thinking and then un- and unfortunately an inferiority thinking. And um, to have someone just fed that is um, just so desensitized. I mean, it's a lot of things that we have to really address because... Um, I just think I got grandchildren now, and I just think how many murders do they actually see 
between video games and what they watch on TV, you know. I mean, we had the road running and somebody, you know, fall off the cliff and then they get back, you know, but it's just, it's not as hardcore as cartoons, but, but now to just exaggerate that type of thing over and over again, you know, because I'm thinking, how are you shooting grand people 80 something? You, I mean, how, what, if you mad, what are they, how are you feeling threatened by that, you know? So that's, uh, was just really hard to swallow. And then just to think about it, when can it happen again? Or, you know, like now with, um, you know, the, the former president at home being, you know, all the rhetoric and against the police force and FBI and these type of things. So if, if that's constantly, Fed and promoted, you know, we just have to have some kind of responsibility. And um, um, I think we're more of a threat when we feel that um, uh, your identity is some kind of fear. You know, the Quran said that God made us all in the most excellent mold in the most excellent fashion. And that goes for every human being. And if you believe that, then I don't have to depend on somebody else telling me if I'm good or not, because God told me. And that's all that I really need to know, and that gives me a sense of uh, security. Fadri Ansari mm-hmm. is our guest, Imam. Uh, Fadri Ansari is with us uh, for just a couple of more minutes. And uh, I, when I saw you this morning, I called you coach because mm-hmm. you are a longtime basketball coach here mm-hmm. uh, in Buffalo, both at the Turner Carroll's legendary uh, teams at the Turner Carroll High School, which is now closed, and, of course, at Buffalo State College as well. Um, we're just curious about, if you can maybe put it into words to a certain extent, Buffalo and basketball. What what does basketball mean to the community of Buffalo? Wow, that's a kind of loaded question. I know when I first came here, you know, the Buffalo Braves was still playing, and then Randy Smith, you know, Buffalo State alumni, was playing at the Ord, and I was at the game that he got injured and saw the air leave the uh, Memorial Auditorium because I think a lot of people knew that might be the end of the Braves. There was already talk about them them leaving. So um, it's, it's a wonderful history there. Um, I was in school at University of uh, Buffalo. I played one year at the old Clark Hall, Jim <laughs> <laughs> on Main Street before we moved out to... Um, uh, to at least uh, one of us knows <laughs> what that means. <laughs> <laughs> before they move out to Amherst and where it is um, uh, now. Um, the Randy Smith Summer League, where I got started um, coaching, and I, I wanted to give back to basketball because I had some some neighborhood coaches that really had great influence on my life. Uh, and Howie Lawrence, he had passed away. Um, he actually is Kenny Smith. He actually paid for Kenny Smith's uh, tuition to go to Malloy High Malloy. School. Mm. Um, but guys like that made me wanted to just give back. So my first year, I actually was refereeing, and after getting um, Cussed out for ten dollars a game. I said, "I got to get into coaching." So, you know, I went downtown and got some kids around the old JFK Center and the, the Willett Old Willett PAL Center on Jefferson Avenue. And I didn't know anyone. I just just started and um, I got a team in the Randy Smith Summer League, and then that's how uh, I got started. But I was, you know, um, seeing some guys. Ray Hall, who played it, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, at Kanishas and. You know, Cliff Robinson, you know, I coached, you know, for Trevor Ruffin, who's um, kind of f- forgotten about, but yeah, I mean, NBA careers, not many people come through here. Uh, you know, Ricky Williams, guys who have a chance to uh, make it through the NBA. Um, I don't like to start naming names because there's too many, you know. Right, 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 of course. Um, 
wonderful history. And then um, the Buff State, you know, Dick Beard, the great teams they had um, yeah. at Buff State. But there is so, a connection, though, at the end of the day, though. I guess that's what I was trying to get at a little mm-hmm. bit about, you know, Buffalo, you know, it maybe gets lost because there's a pro football team, there's a pro, so- uh, pro hockey team, mm-hmm. but basketball has its own special niche in Buffalo. Yes, absolutely. And um, um, some players uh, tell now when they come to school, they're surprised that the, that the Clippers is, is rooted in, in <laughs> right. Buffalo. They right. don't know the L.A. Clippers. Um, but, yeah, and, and then it's, um, I've always, you know, with race relations and issues and those things that um, basketball and sports has a way to, to, to really cross those lines, uh, avenues, give you avenues more than just your common go, going in and out in life, I think. Sports has a way to really can, can cross that. And then when you're a team and you fighting together and going through practice and sacrificing together, that, that bonds you. You know, that really kind of makes you a family if, you, if you're really true in heart. So we, we appreciate that. I couldn't have uh, said it better myself, that's for sure. I, and I do appreciate that. Our guest this morning has been Imam uh, Fadri Ansari of Masjid Numan over on uh, Fillmore Avenue, also head basketball coach at Buffalo State. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Coming up next, it's uh, the Reverend Mark Blue, head of the uh, NAACP here in Buffalo. He'll be with Dave Debo. This is Buffalo What's Next. Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. Watch Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Crystal Beach was such an important part of the lives of anyone growing up in the western New York or southern Ontario area. Relive those childhood memories with the WNED PBS original production, Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Buffalo Commons Charter School. Now enrolling K and first grade students for the 2022-23 school year, Buffalo Commons Charter School is a place where kids can engage with a rigorous project-based curriculum, develop strong relationships with diverse classmates, and discover a sense of purpose. Details and information at buffalocommonscharter.org or 716-222-0416. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO your NPR station. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. The Reverend Mark Blue is here. He's the president of the Buffalo NAACP. He's also co-chair of the 514 Survivors Fund, a man that's uh, ideally in a position to talk about uh, not only the fund, but obviously how the community is doing these days. Reverend Blue, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, it, it is a great uh, opportunity just to share some information uh, regarding our community uh, three months uh, after we've been involved in this tragic shooting. Uh, one of the things that's going on is, is there, there is a healing process. It's slow. Uh, and there is some indecision on whether the top should open, uh, whether the location is there. And I understand. I understand there is a great intrepidation about what's going on. And it, it's something that uh, 
the question is always going to be asked, what do we do? Mm. Uh, should it have opened? Should it have not opened? Uh, but we have a community that's still in great need. And I, I see that debate largely being one that perhaps two opposing sides are both right in. Um, yes, the community needs its tops, but yes, people are still triggered by one that is open. And if, if one of those prevails, you don't have a supermarket. And if the other prevails, um, you have people who are still sad and upset that the supermarket is open. So those two can, unfortunately, coexist. It's not that we can do anything about it. We can voice our concerns, but the overall community need is what we, I, I believe we have to focus in on. To have people being bused to get groceries and bus back is an old South uh, routine that we don't want to have to go through. Uh, but for the tops to open as soon as it did, you're always going to have that. That will be the, the question uh, of a lifetime. And I don't think we'll be able to answer that question. But we do know there's a great need in the community, even for seniors who go shopping at that tops to get their groceries and things of that nature. Is the broader solution another facility of some sort? be it Wegmans or Aldi or, or uh, Super Savers, something along those lines. That would help. All of that would help uh, to give choice and to give a variety. Uh, it will help, uh, but you still have some who will not go to that tops because it's still in the same location. If there was another location, I think it would have been sought out. Uh, I hope it would have been sought out. But right now we have uh, this particular location in which they have uh, done a great job in remodeling, but you still can't change the location of where things uh, took place. Beyond the needs of the neighborhood in terms of access to food, what else are you seeing? How, how are people doing? People are coping. Uh, people are, are getting along. Um, as a race of, of people, we are resilient, uh, but still, it's it's troubling. It's disheartening. Uh, we have to get along because we have to. And and life has not stopped. So we have to make uh, those choices. We have to to push through and we have to remain uh, focused on what needs to happen in our community. Uh, this has brought a lot of conversation uh, with all residents uh, in the community. This has brought a lot of conversation with all political affiliates in the community as to steps that need to be taken next. Beyond just looking at what the needs of the community are, let's look at it a little more broadly for a second. Was this the catalyst to have more conversations between white people and black people? What I, what I saw is that there were a lot of ethnicities uh, that came together uh, in light of this. Uh, what I believe that the white supremacist uh, movement and this individual thought, he thought they would have mayhem. They, he thought there would be an implosion. He thought there would be violence. But what happened, uh, communities came together, every ethnicity. We came together and we came on uh, the Jefferson site and we had prayer. Uh, we came together uh, to give out more information. We came together to help the community uh, in uh, the needs of food, of food. Uh, we came together to give whatever assistance that we could to the community, and we're still doing that. Uh, there are a lot of agencies that are still out there 
Uh, there are a lot of, and I'm going to say it like this, there are a lot of uh, our business community who don't have businesses in that area that are out there trying to support. Now, the other thing is, why work businesses in that area? Yeah. And that's something that we need to look at. We need more jobs in that area. We need uh, that area now is highlighted uh, nationally uh, for what it has not uh, been effective in it and what it has. Uh, you have people who are resilient, but you also have uh, businesses that are not in the Jefferson area uh, that should be in the Jefferson area that can help bring a more of an economic impact. I know they have developments there, but in those developments and those apartment buildings, that money is not staying in the community. We need more uh, of infrastructure in there for housing. We need more opportunity for people to get their housing uh, fixed, roofs, sidewalks, uh, siding, all of those things. The, 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 the problem is that sometimes uh, those monies are made available, but the hoops that you have to go through in order to get those funds to help fix up your home, to help fix up some of the infrastructure uh, is, is very challenging. And that's what we have to do. We have to somehow streamline the process so that uh, some of our seniors who are living in their homes, who are taking pride in their homes, and some of the vacant lots uh, will disappear and homes can go in there as well. So, so infield housing, too. Dr. Henry Lewis Gates at UB has written a lot about problems in the community. And one of the things that he's looked at is the difference between home ownership and incredibly high rental rates. You just talked a little bit about repairing the homes that are there. If there's a lot of renters, a lot of those homes are landlords' homes. How do we increase home ownership on the east side? You need some different programs that can help out there. You have a lot of people who want to, uh, who want to buy, who want, want to live in a house, their own home. And and this is a proven fact that a lot more home ownership will help increase the value of the community, increase the value of the neighborhood, and those are things that need to happen uh, on a expeditiously. They need to happen. But we also need to make sure that we have jobs available. Uh, getting, I, I want to share with you that redlining still exists. Mm-hmm. And we have to stop that with some of the banks that are out there that are not giving home loans to individuals who are qualified, but because of the area in which they're trying to purchase a home, they're being uh, not allowed to have a mortgage. So we have to curb that. We have to investigate that as the NAACP uh, we want to challenge that as well for those banks that are out there. But we know we need jobs, uh, sustainable jobs, so, to, so the income does not change and people can uh, afford to have a home. Let me pick up on that. Are there specific banks that you are either targeting or cajoling or working with? Well, banks in general. Uh, I'm not going to name any banks, Okay. but I'm going to say that uh, they all are on notice uh, that we're looking, we're watching and to make sure uh, that there's no indiscretions when individuals, uh, if a black individual goes and asks for a loan and they don't get a loan, but a white individual goes in there and gets a loan with the same credentials, the same financial status, the same uh, uh, credit report numbers, uh, that's, a, that's a problem. That's a problem. Talk to me about the flow of money, probably from government or maybe from private groups, foundations, what have you. Are there power brokers and gatekeepers that are keeping development from occurring on the east side? Um, It's been three months. I think there has been a lot of discussion about making sure that there is change in the community. 
but I also see systemic issues. Not not even systemic racism, which is a whole other issue, sure. That's a whole other issue. But but I'm wondering if you can address the idea of gatekeepers and bureaucracy and the current power system. Uh, yes, there are individuals, and we have to make sure that we deal with our political affiliates and we put them on on alert uh, to some of the things that need to happen, some of the changes. One of the greatest power brokers that I know is the community. The community holds the key to change. When we find individuals who may not be doing things right, who, who are affluent, it's the community. The community has the power to make some changes and to make some noise. As John Lewis said, we need to get in some good trouble. Mm. We need to make noise in the, with those establishments, with those entities that are not doing their fair share uh, in our community, that are holding progress back in our community. So it's very important that the community is engaged in the activities of getting things done. And they are. They are. This has raised a, a height of awareness to no, to no limit to where we want to now stand up even more so and say enough is enough. Similarly, as bureaucracies can sometimes get in the way, I imagine internal power struggles get in the way. And I'm not making any accusations here, but I'm wondering if you're seeing some sort of split maybe between new guard and old guard. One of the things that you can't do, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, and you also have to look at uh, the history of change. Uh, change is, can sometimes be slow in the process. Uh, our seniors who have been around they know the ins and outs. And I understand that our, our newer generation, uh, they are more vocal and boisterous. Uh, they are more, let's get it done now. But we have to understand that change is a process. And sometimes if you hurry change, you will uh, mess up a lot of things. Uh, those who, fe- who, who, who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And that's one of the things that we have to make sure that we work together in this, both the old and the new, the millennials and the seniors and the elders. We have to come together and have a plan of action to where we all can agree and even agree to disagree. How does that happen? Do we need a, a community summit of sorts or, or is it just everyone pushing forward and eventually coming together? Well, there is an opportunity for everyone to come together uh, and together we can, together we're strong. Divided, we fall. So it's important that we do come together and that we do realize the change that we need to have and then work on getting that change done. Uh, there's sometimes there's too many, too many eyes <laughs> and not enough yous uh, in the mix, and we have to come together and work on it uh, together. Now, in addition to being uh, the president of the NAACP, you are a reverend. Church groups have a huge role here. Absolutely. The church has been the foundation especially in the African-American community. Uh, and the pastors and the religious leaders are, are there to help lend support. We're, help, we're there to help continue the conversation because there are doors that are open to us that, door, that are not open to just the regular community. Explain uh, that. What do you mean? The politicians, they go to churches uh, during election time because mm. the church uh, is the gathering place, especially where there's a, a continuous audience on a Sunday. And in order to access that, they have to talk to the pastors. And the pastors can either give them a word uh, of encouragement, yes, you can come in, or no. And that's one of the things about it. Uh, They come to the church because the pastors have the heartbeat of the community. 
if there's a wrong decision in government, most people are going to talk to their pastor about it. And their pastor ha um, has the opportunity to even call on the carpet some of those leaders uh, that are out there and express the sentiment of the community because uh, politicians need votes. Let's, uh, I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to single any politician out. But what is your message to them? If, if you were to pull one of them in the room and say, hey, we got to address this and this and this, what would you say to these politicians in general? I would say, listen, how can we help you help our community? Because sometimes you put them on a defensive, you'll never get anything done. So we want to, uh, as, as, a, as a pastor, my concern is for our people. Uh, as a pastor, uh, the generations that are coming up is something that we need to really focus on. So let's see what good we can do to make sure these things happen so that our children uh, and our generation of now are not being lost. So we need to have those hard conversations with, with politicians and others, business leaders as well, uh, to look at how we can better help our community grow and heal. Do churches endorse? Should they endorse? No, churches do not endorse. We and you're okay endorse. with that? I, I'm okay with that. You want that? Absolutely, because if somebody's out there doing something that's not good, fair, or right, we need to stand up to them. Uh, just like the NAACP, we're a nonpartisan organization. And because of that, uh, we have the ear uh, of those who definitely desire office, who are in office, or aspiring to be in office. The Reverend Mark Blue is here. He is the president of the Buffalo chapter of the NAACP. He is also co-chair of the 514 Survivors Fund. And today is especially an interesting day or a good day to talk a little bit about that fund. Applications open today. Applications open today. There's a process in which any and all individuals who feel they have been uh, a part of the uh, massacre that has taken place uh, at TOPS can fill out an application. That application is uh, accessible through the nationalcompassionfund.org. That is the website. And you can scroll down to 514 Survivors Fund, and the application will be online at that time. I also want to share with you that the Buffalo Urban League will be uh, assisting people. They will have navigators there. And there are some other sites that we can list as well that will have navigators to help individuals uh, fill out the application and to, uh, if there's documents that are required, uh, I would recommend you go to the site, look at the application, and they can tell you if you need any additional documentation. Uh, they will also help you in filling out the application. For, the, for those documents that have to be submitted, uh, some of them will have to be notarized. And uh, the Buffalo Urban League and, and others, some of them have notaries right there. Mm. And you don't have to send the actual document. Uh, you would have to just make sure that it goes uh, either through mail or fax uh, to the right to the right uh, people in filling out the application. So it's very critical uh, that those who feel they are grieved, those who feel that they are the survivors as well, uh, and as per the protocol, fill it out because it has to be verified. And the application process starts uh, August the 16th and it ends on September the 14th. We want to make sure that Everyone who, who is affected uh, and applies uh, and the application is, is uh, verified uh, receives uh, the gift that is uh, been donated and collected. And at the end of the program, if, if people want to grab their paper and pencil now, at the end of the program, we will 
once again, give you those websites and those places to go for more information. Who applies? Who is eligible? Because there has been a lot of discussion in the community about certainly those who lost family members. Obviously, they're in a, a category perhaps different from everyone else. But there has also been discussion about people who were in the TOPS or TOPS workers who uh, have some lingering trauma or who saw things that uh, have, have meant expenses for them. Uh, there are workers who lost work because of it. Is this a really big tent? Are they eligible too? Because a lot of the discussion I've heard in the community is that these people are kind of left out. Tell me more. Well, uh, we have made sure, and we try to do our due diligence now, uh, to make sure that individuals who were who lost a family member, uh, individuals who were wounded uh, from the shooting, uh, individuals who were in the store uh, during in which the shooting occurred, um, TOPS employees are part of it as well, those who were there and even those who were not because there's still trauma. Those who were, the area of, of, of consideration is in the parking lot area and right around the, the building of that TOPS. Uh, those are individuals uh, who are eligible to apply. Now, one of the things that we also, uh, in verifying, it is this is not limited, but this is one of the steps, is making sure that uh, maybe you were interviewed by the police as verification that you were there. So uh, the, the application process has all of, it, of the particulars that are needed for an individual to fill, to fill out and to check out their eligibility. What is available? Let's say someone did not lose a loved one or was not specifically physically injured. What kind of compensation are they eligible for? How, uh, how big of a pot of money is it and how large are the individual grants? Well, it's not a grant. It's a gift. Okay. I, I want to say that. And, and there's a difference? There's a gift. There's okay. a difference. There's a difference. It, it's, it's a gift that will be given to the individual, um, and it's not taxable. Uh, and that's one of the things that we uh, are looking at, making sure that uh, no, one, no one should receive any harm from receiving this gift. Uh, and I say that because you have those who are receiving uh, public assistance, those who are receiving some uh, grants and some Medicaid, Medicare, uh, social services, they should not be penalized if they are eligible to receive this gift. Uh, and that is one of the things that we wanted to make sure that um, all because I lost a loved one and I received this, well, that means I am no longer eligible for uh, the assistance that I'm receiving. No, that it means you're not. That means that Yes, you are still eligible for the assistance that you may be receiving. That's why we're taking great lifts to talk and work with individuals who are in that particular category. And I would say if you are and if you apply and if you are accepted, uh, we'll talk to you and we have individuals that will help you through that process. So it's very important. What kind of funds could they get and what do that they still spend to be it determined. on? That is still to be determined. Once you, when you receive a gift, that's yours. We don't tell you what to do with that gift. That is totally uh, your discretion what you do uh, with that particular gift. Uh, but as far as how the funds will be broken down, that is still to be determined because you don't know how many people fit in each category. Hmm. So we want to make sure... Uh, that we talk, that we have that after we have the applications and those who are eligible. Uh, we know that those who lost family members are eligible. Those who are wounded and the severity of their wounds and the, even the follow-on care 
are eligible. Those who are in TOPS during that time are eligible. TOPS employees, they can be verified uh, by their uh, by TOPS itself mm. and also by the police. Those are things that we look at. How large is the overall fund right now? Currently, uh, if you can go on the website, it would say $4.6 million, but we do believe it may be more than that because there are organizations that are, for instance, the Buffalo Bills selling T-shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Hortons is selling a special donut. So it, it's going to take some time for all of that to come into play uh, as far as receiving the benefits from those uh, special uh special gifts and special shirts that they have. But the fund will be closed and uh, receiving no more monies September the 20th. Uh, the fund will be closed. And that's a matter of accounting purposes so we can know exactly how much we have and how much we can allocate. That's when the, the committee will come back together, look at the overall applicants and look at the overall total of the fund and then make the distributions uh, categories. Well, the distribution amounts uh, to those particular categories. And the distribution is not necessarily just a mathematical process. If you have $1,000 and 10 people, then you do the math and you can figure out how, you, how much each person gets. That's not what you're doing here, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. What sort of calculus do you undertake to figure out who gets what? If this one family member, uh, an allocation would be made toward that family member and then the other members would receive whatever is on that category. Okay. So we, we want to make sure that we're fair with everyone. If someone and their, their son or daughter were both in the tops, it would go to the parent perhaps? Yes. Okay. It, there is a, a process to where the guardian uh, can apply for those two, for, for, those, for, that, for that particular scenario. And, it, and there's a process to which we want to make sure that it goes to the right people. How do you figure out who gets how much? That's a process. Once we get all of the information, once the fund is closed, once we know how much money we're dealing with, uh, then we will look at assigning monies to those categories. In the application, do people, and I, I heard what you said earlier about when you get a gift, uh, you, you don't necessarily have strings on it. In the application process, what do you ask them? Do they say how they want to spend it? That, that is not even a part of the application. How they're going to spend it is not a part of the application okay. process at all. Uh, once you have been uh, certified or uh, accepted, and once everything has been validated, it's a gift. It's yours. We do not tell you how to spend the gift uh, that you have been given. That's totally upon the individual. Now, there's also a process to where, um, depending on, well, there's a process to if you would like to have some information on um investing or things like that, we, that would be available to you as well. So people will be, I, I hate to use the word divided up, but people will be categorized. You'll have a category of people, I imagine, who lost loved ones. You'll have a category of people who were physically injured. Correct. And then tell me a little bit about what the other categories are starting to look like to the well, degree that you, you have. You have the categories of uh, TOPS employees. You have the category of survivors who were in the store, in the parking lot area. And then you also have non-employees and tops who were not at the store. So you have actually, and this is new to even the Survivors Fund, we added that category to make sure we covered everyone who would be affected. If, if a shut-in, for example, has spent extra funds to do Instacart or some sort of online shopping, 
that is a cost to them as a result of the shooting. Is that something that would make them an applicant? No, no. You have to be in the store. You have to be present in the store. Okay. Uh, so it, it's not for someone who was an online shopper, uh, but you have to be present in the store. Some of the community has needs that will not be met by this fund. That's just a that's that's a, a byproduct of the way it's set up. Yes. Okay. Yes. What do you do for them? We have nothing, no provisions uh, for some for for the for those particular individuals. Let, let me rephrase the question: What does the community? Because I, I understand the fund well, being different. When we, what does the community at, do for when them? We look at what's happening in our community right now. There are a lot of different services that are being provided for the community. Uh, even uh, counseling services that are being provided for the community. And uh, from what the county was saying, that, that that's still going to be an ongoing process uh, to help the community heal. Uh, there are a lot of different agencies that are coming in the community to help them heal as well. There are uh, healing circles from different organizations that are there to help them heal. This is a continued process. Uh, once the fund is over, the fund is over. There is a, another uh, organizational fund called Help Buffalo Heal, and that's being uh, used to look at what we can do to make that area better. So there's a lot of different agencies and helps that are still being provided to the community, and not just now, but tomorrow and for years to come. You're going to see these agencies continuing to, to provide to help and support uh, to make Buffalo better, to curb uh, what the white supremacist thought he could do uh, in making, in disrupting and, and dividing Buffalo. Uh, he may have disrupted us, but he did not divide us. What he did was to make us stronger and we're stronger together. How do people get in touch? Applications start opening today. Yes. Where do they go? What do they do? How do they access not only the application, but some of the other services you spoke of, the uh, the, the guides that will take them through the process? Well, we I do know that uh, Buffalo Urban League, they're located on the Jeff in, on Jefferson. They will be uh, a spot or a resource in which they can have navigators, and they will be ready to help individuals uh, go through the process. Uh, the resource center on East Ferry is also a site that is being used. I just read in the news that the uh, Macedonia Baptist Church is supposed to be a site as well. But I do know that the Resource Center on Jefferson, on the East Ferry uh, will be a site to have navigators. Uh, those navigators will be possibly eligible to go to homes of those who are still affected, who haven't left their home, or who are still dealing with the trauma uh, of the 514 massacre. All right, here's that paper and pencil part if people wanted to write down some resources. The Buffalo Urban League is at buffalourbanleague.org. And their phone number is 250-2400. Again, that's 250-2400. The actual application is online somewhere. Where do people go to access that? The people can ask, access the application on nationalcompassionfund.org and scroll down to Buffalo Survivors Fund, 514 Survivors Fund, and you can get the application online, online as well. Uh, one of the things that they wanted to do was make the process very easy to where you can even apply on your phone. Uh, because we do know that everyone, that the majority of people have a cell phone, so you can start the process even on your cell mm. phone. Great. Reverend Blue, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Reverend Mark Blue is the president of the NAACP Buffalo Chapter and also chair of that 514 Survivors Fund. Co-chair. Co-chair. <laughs> okay. We, we don't want to get the uh, 
the people that you're sharing it with upset. He <laughs> is the co-chair of the 514 Survivors Fund. Reverend Blue, again, thanks. Thank you. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.